Welcome to Swell Conversations, a promotional HAE series. I'm your host, Dr. John Anderson, and joining me today will be Dr. Rafi Tashtin. Uh, this educational program is sponsored by Farming Healthcare, Inc. The speakers have been compensated for presentation of this information. The information contained within this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. Patient experiences may be discussed in this episode. It is important to recognize that these experiences may not be representative as every patient has a unique disease course. This activity is not intended for continuing medical education credits. Now, if you're just tuning in, this is our final episode of a four-part series titled Swell Conversations. It's all about exploring the challenges facing patients and providers who are managing uh, hereditary angioedema, also known as HAE. And, and through these series, we have been investigating approaches to provide more effective care by better connecting uh, with our patients. And today we will be bridging the conversation by discussing uh, redosing and HAE attacks. We will explore redosing and how it can impact patients, how to approach conversations with patients about the need to redose, and of course, management considerations. Today, we're really lucky to have Dr. Rafi Tashtin with us. Rafi, give us a little introduction about yourself, where you are, and uh, how you got interested in treating patients with hereditary angioedema. Thank you, John. Uh, Rafi Tashtin here. I'm an allergist and immunologist and associate professor at the University of California in Los Angeles. I have a couple of clinics that I run, and we are lucky to be designated referral centers for the Hereditary Angioedema Association for Southern California. And my interest in hereditary angioedema, or HAE, really sparked about a couple of decades ago while doing residency in Boston and seeing some of these patients. And I kind of always gravitated towards the more rare disease and diagnoses. And that's where I kind of started picking up patients. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. And, you know, Rafi and I have had a chance to interact with each other on so many different things from uh, publications to opportunities to, to do research together. And I know that he's very passionate, very knowledgeable about this condition. So Rafi, in our previous episodes, we discussed the nature of HAE, how it's a rare condition, disease characterized by recurring episodes of swelling, that it can be life-threatening, uh, often it's discomforting whenever a patient is having an attack. We know that HAE is primarily caused by mutations in the gene that encodes for the enzyme C1 esterase inhibitor. In broad strokes, Rafi, if you could tell us about the management of HAE, how do we prevent and treat attacks? Thank you, John. Uh, essentially, when we look at the couple of categories for management or therapeutics for hereditary angioedema, First, we've got prophylactic therapies, and these are essentially administered at regular periods for attack prevention. Then we have on-demand therapies, which are to be used at the onset of an HAE attack or at the recognition of, a, of the start of an attack. The 2020 United States Hereditary Angioedema Association guidelines recommend that all patients with HAE have access to at least two doses of an effective on-demand acute medication. So regardless of whether someone is on a prophylactic therapy as part of their regimen, that is the recommendation to have those two doses 
on demand available to them. You know, Rafi, I can't overemphasize the importance of having rescue medication for our patients. Even patients who are reported to have good control can still experience attacks. And even if the attacks are infrequent, they always are inconvenient. I can think of a particular patient in mind who went, you know, a, a good stretch of more than a year without having an attack and then found herself in a moment where she was having an episode but didn't have her rescue medication with her. And for me, it always serves as a reminder that even under good control, you don't always know if and when or why or how the attack is going to happen. And it's just better to be prepared. When we think about that, talking to our patients about having that message of having access to on-demand therapies, we also recognize that everybody's course is a little different. You know, this is a heterogeneous condition. Rafi, how do you assess whether the treatment plan is working? Uh, how do you know if a patient is responding to the treatment? So great points, John. As you emphasize, and I can't overemphasize, it's unpredictable swelling. and Sometimes a patient might forget about the episodes. So it's great to, at each follow-up visit, go back at least on a three-month basis and say something like, in the past three months, how were you feeling? So this can be as, as simple as a response from a patient saying, I'm feeling fine. And if that's the response, then I, I'm one who probes further because I want to make sure that we're not missing any kind of minute, any kind of detail that might elicit further workup or further adjustments in, in their uh, management. And so I'll ask further probing questions such as, what are some of the activities you can enjoy? Or are you able to make those events that you've put on your calendar? For instance, a graduation of your child or your birthday or a loved one's job promotion party. And do you anticipate any challenges in meeting those calendar invites that you've put down? And then are there factors that are holding you back as a patient from attending these events? Is your HAE out of control? Or is your on-demand therapy not as reliable as you want it to be? And so during that discussion, I'll try to determine whether feeling fine, which is what the patient expressed, really means, for one, that they feel that there is no room for improvement, or two, that the patient has learned to live this way. And as you know, John, as a healthcare professional that wants to optimize what the patient's uh, experiencing, uh, we all wanna be able to help the patient live life to the fullest and spread their wings. And one obvious way to know if a patient's on-demand treatment is not working is if they need to be hospitalized due to a lack of response during an HAE swell. And sometimes the signs that a treatment is not meeting the patient's needs may be more subtle, and patients will redose their on-demand treatment without telling their healthcare provider. And we talk about this term, so maybe let's take a second and talk about what is redosing. Well, it's when a patient is administering multiple doses of therapy within 24 hours, to manage one HAE attack. Redosing may indicate that a treatment is not meeting patients' needs, and redosing should not be considered a normal part of HAE treatment and should be discussed between the patient and their healthcare provider at each visit. 
So Rafi, there's there's two points. I, I really like that that list and kind of how you you draw out of the patient how he or she is doing. Uh, it reminded me of a story of a patient who was just over the moon, so much happier when she was placed on a rescue therapy. But as I kind of explored the story with her, what I realized is she was still significantly delaying her treatment. And while she was still experiencing some degree of efficacy with that, you know, I, of course, knew that she could be experiencing a greater degree of effect, a relief from the medication if she used it earlier. And, and what was so funny to me about the story is, is she's telling me all of this good news. And I'm thinking, no, this could be way better. So, so I think that your approach of asking about these different moments in their life is really a way to kind of let the story be told without just asking, how is your HAE doing? You then kind of brought it back to this idea that sometimes the patients are, are, are redosing. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I'm kind of new at asking my patients about this. And, and I, I've discovered that they don't automatically disclose to me if they are redosing. And so that's something that I need to work on about being more consistent uh, with asking this question. Uh, but I find myself having this conversation more and more. And as I do, I am learning that this is happening. Rafi, what do we know about how common redosing is and how it can impact our patients? Well, John, we know that in the literature, redosing rates were as high as 44% for attacks of some acute HAE treatments. And overall, about 3 to 44% of HAE swells included in the analysis in one of the papers required the use of a second on-demand treatment dose. So going back to what you said, we are empaths and we are respectful, but we need to prod further, like you said. For our audience, just as a reminder, for those who are interested, you can find a full reference list uh, in this episode description for any of the, uh, the studies or the other papers that are quoted through the program tonight. And I'll be honest, I think for me that here that it could be as high as 44% makes me think, no, it's not that high. <laughs> My patients don't do it this much. And then, uh, of course, how do I know if I'm not asking? So... <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And uh, when a patient's needing to, re to rely on multiple doses and redosing, and there's that lack of awareness in both directions, whether the patient's reporting it or not, or the healthcare professional is not extracting that bit of data, what ends up happening is the patient's on the defensive. And so they constantly need to react instead of really act on the first hint, the first prodrome, the first a sign or symptom of a swell coming on. These swells can be really distracting from being present in life for a patient. And our job is really to get them to be active so that anxiety and fear and all the negative kind of burdens of the condition aren't coming on due to the burden of the treatment or needing to redose essentially. I do agree with you that there's that kind of vicious HAE attack, anxiety kind of feedback loop that our patients can find themselves into sometimes. Completely agree. And to try to ease that anxiety and the, and the fear of the next attack 
really our job is to coach that patient so that once they administer treatment for a swell, uh, they can also try to do the other things. You know, it's it's holistic. It's it's whole body. Try to find the calm spot. Go to your little sanctuary, whatever that may be. The burden of having to redose is really in the word itself, redosing. So you need to redose, dose again, retreat. I mean, when you think of any condition, a treatment is supposed to take care of the problem. And so redosing really creates a redundancy here. And really, in the end, the patient's probably thinking, and, and I've heard this, well, I guess I'm accepting mediocrity, which is so negative. And so uh, once that kind of that cascade starts unfolding, really the, the patient's willpower is lost and uh, disease management is suboptimal. And again, I'm glad that we're having this conversation because it's something that we may, may not have touched on four or five years ago. But that's what's so important about bringing out the redosing issue in every visit with a patient. So um, thinking about that, certainly we recognize that across our, our treatment paradigm, we have some patients on preventative medicine and some who are on rescue alone. The patients who are on prophylaxis, our, our, our goal or hope for them is that they're having a, a great reduction in the number of attacks. But that doesn't always mean that the attacks go well. You know, I mentioned that patient earlier who had had left the home without her medication, and that ended up becoming an ER visit. So it's almost like a slot machine. Each each pull is going to be is going to have a different outcome or different severity, different duration. And so our job, I feel, is to educate and train and prepare the patient because. Like you said, we don't have a, a cure for HAE. So even on a prophylactic or without one, there could be an attack. And then keeping that conversation piece open with the healthcare professional at each follow-up to say whether the treatment worked, how early or how late I used the, the, the therapeutic, the on-demand therapy, uh, how long it took to hit that inflection point so the attack progress actually stops. And overall, the satisfaction, side effects, how, how do I feel? How comfortable I am to continue moving forward with this choice that we've come up with? Thanks for those examples, Rafi. I've already mentioned that I'm a newbie at having this conversation about redosing. But why don't patients share this with us? Why are they making our job so hard? Are there any reasons why I and other uh, treating physicians might be somewhat blissfully ignorant uh, to this phenomenon? Well, frankly, John, I, I think, first of all, you're an amazing physician and HAE specialist. But that aside, and I'm not buttering you up, uh, we all stand to learn things. And that's part of medicine. That's part of being better and better each day. And so our job as HAE specialists is really encompasses being somewhat of a whisperer and understanding the HAE patient. We don't have HAE, but we got to try to get it as well behind their eyes and see the world from their eyes, their perspective. And to do that, communication is what's necessary. Keep talking about it. Here, we're physician to physician, trying to trying to get better at it. And I'm glad that we've started discussing this important piece of acute attacks and management, which is the redosing piece, because we can all pivot a little bit with each new case or situation so that we can 
kind of bend with the conditions that are presented to us or the uh, the facts to start with to yield better outcomes. Because you know this, no patient with HAE is a textbook classic case. Oh, no, they never read the textbook. It'd be nice if they did. Exactly. But when they feel that I'm here to help, and that's why I'm asking those questions, you know, I'm not here to criticize you or, or just placate you. That's when usually the communication cracks open and we get some really good nuggets of information. That's That really is what being a whisperer is all about. I like it. I'll have you come whisper to some of my patients too. And you bring that funny enough, I'm going to add one more layer, the next of kin. So the, the supportive person that might have shown up with the patient is also another one to turn to sometimes and say, is that what you see? Is that, is, is that the experience you see? as the person in the home or at work or as the coach, et cetera, or as the personal nurse, whatever the scenario might be, so that that's the time for them to open up and say, well, the patient in question might be downplaying or might be accepting that redosing scenario when, in fact, it appears that a lot more, a lot more good can come out of this if, you know, you, the physician and the patient could agree on a more optimal solution here or treatment path. Absolutely. So Rafi, you know how short our time can be with our patients. And I feel like the list of things that we need to cover with, with our patients keeps growing. Any tips on how to unmask or initiate a, a topic about redosing? Sure, John. You can't overemphasize how shorter and shorter the visits seem to be or the information keeps growing and growing on what we need to capture to optimize outcome. And I, I like to refer or have an analog in the asthma uh, scenario where we have the asthma control test, for instance, five simple questions. Well, similarly in angioedema, we have the uh, AEQOL or the quality of life test questionnaire, which is validated. And when we have recurrent angioedema happening, that's a good way to ask those questions in order to track, in this instance, the quality of life, but it could bring up the question of the treatment. And at each follow-up, presuming it, they're occurring at every three months, or even if you're only able to catch that patient once a year, by asking the same questions, maybe you won't catch it on that first visit, but I truly believe in the second or third, at some point, that it's the same questions that are evoking that thought, that recall in the patient's mind, that it can only bring out some good information. Yeah. And so when we, when we ask that patient to kind of track their attacks or, uh, or really talk about how, how well the treatment went, et cetera, we want to have them get into that routine. So it's almost like recalling your dreams. You're only going to be good at them if you wake up and start thinking, all right, let me write down what happened. So that you bring that information to the doctor and there's something sub substantive that can be discussed there. In talking about tracking, it's natural to ask if, if you, you know, recommend a tracking app like HAE and me, or uh, do you have a, a good number of patients who are doing that? Or are they kind of bringing the information in, in a different methodology? Great question. It, it funny enough, my experience is it's generational. So the older generations might actually have the notebook 
from the corner store where they have the attacks tracked. And uh, in between would be the generation that has the Excel spreadsheet on their laptop. Again, almost like a uh, a big tracker that's got details, sometimes more than you can contain within a visit. And then the younger generation that, again, in my opinion, is more app-based. And they might have an HAE and me app sitting there on their phone that they can pull up easily, which makes life really easier for us and our nurses to even print that out or put that into the chart as objective data. So, Rafi, once you've reviewed the attacks uh, with the app, uh, where do you go next? This is probably the most important part because you don't want to feel or you don't want to make the patient feel like you're done and thank you, bye-bye. I look at and review with them the question about how they feel their HAE is being treated. It's like the asthma control test. How do you feel your asthma was controlled in the last four weeks or last month? And I look at them in the eye because that's when you want to just express verbally, body language, that you are there for them and that safe space. And that's when they might say, it's great that I put down everything's fine, but I just don't feel this is right, doc. And that can open up a whole new angle to say, all right, let's, how do we make sure that you are on the right treatment and recognizing these attacks, et cetera. I'm reminded of an adult patient of mine who, when I was seeing him in his younger years at a particular appointment, I asked how he's doing. And as you know, we didn't have many treatments at the time. In fact, we didn't have any treatments at the time for this uh, gentleman. And he was a little too quiet for my own comfort, from uh, for my own taste. So I took a different approach. I took the champion approach. And I actually asked him, do you feel like a champion? Like you're winning out there, whether it's at school, equally as you feel at home in the confines and the safety of your own family. And at that moment, his whole demeanor changed and felt he felt and looked deflated, frankly, because the people at school, his classmates were making fun of him, calling him a glove hand when he was having swells in his hand. And so he just basically didn't want to go to school around the attacks. So it, it struck me right there that if we don't prod and, and probe for extra questions and to get answers, uh, we really don't get the full story. And I think that's the importance of, in particular, things such as the redosing question. If, if we're not going a step further, we may not get the full picture. Even if it's a long clinic visit, that opportunity could be missed. Absolutely. Are there any other tips or questions or or, or, or things that you want to cover in this visit as you're trying to unmask this redosing uh, phenomenon? Yeah, John, I think to, to add one last point, it's really making that conversation and, and the vocabulary accessible to the patient. The term retreating may be more intuitive to patients than redosing. And so really bringing it down to kind of a collegial or almost a familial conversation so that, again, they feel safe and they are, in a way, prompted to comfortably give you more information that, in turn, can then help them, if that makes sense. It does. 
And so I would be asking the same patient, if you are having attacks, do you use more than one injection, for instance, to treat the swell? And if they say yes, well, that opens up a whole new kind of paradigm to dig in deeper and say, well, how early in the swell are you actually treating the attack? Or how often do you have to retreat a swell within 24 hours? I'll also ask, at what point do you decide to retreat a swell? And how severe are the swells that you're typically retreating? And how does that negatively impact your ability to engage in activities like going to school, you know, basic life's activities? You know, I think that's that's definitely true that we have to speak in their language. So let's say that we have this patient that we've encountered. They're not doing as well as we would hope on their treatment plan. You know, you've uncovered that. Do you have an approach or a strategy for ways that you would adjust uh, the treatment plan? Certainly, John. As you know, we like to get the patient engaged so that we have a shared decision-making process in this entire path or journey. And so the easiest way to do that is as complex as it may be, or the, regardless of the patient's educational level, that's when we really have to address the elephant in the room. But one example that I actually use is, is just to show them the cascade, the immune cascade about around HAE, starting with C1 esterase inhibitor and ending up all the way to bradykinin receptors and the actual uh, angioedema process that occurs. And so that evokes in them, and not all of them, but some patients, a sense of ownership. That kind of demystification and, and taking out that taboo of what I have and how I'm treating it, et cetera, I, I think yields a better interaction with the patient. Rafi, I really like that example about going through the cascade. I, I agree that patients are interested in knowing more about the physiology or the pathophysiology of their disease. And for more information on the HAE cascade and connecting with your patients on the science behind HAE, uh, I would, of course, invite you to please check out the first episode in this podcast series. We've been talking about on-demand treatments, and I think it's a a good time to introduce Rucanest as one of the on-demand treatment options for patients with HAE. That can be an appropriate alternative if a patient is having needs of redosing uh, their treatment uh, to help control HAE swells. Rucanest is approved for acute treatment in adult and adolescent patients with hereditary angioedema. There was not enough data in the clinical studies to establish efficacy in patients with laryngeal attacks. And furthermore, we've been talking about making nuanced changes to a treatment plan, especially if our patients are having a need to redose as a method of uh, managing their attacks. Rafi, how would Rucanest fit into this conversation? Sure, John. I mean, some of the information I'll be giving you is available in the prescribing information for Rucanest, as well as in the paper that Dr. Jonathan Bernstein published in 2017 in uh, the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. When we turn to efficacy in time to symptom relief, which, as we know, is that point in which the patient feels that the attack is no longer progressing. In the pivotal clinical trial, 
as a primary endpoint, the median time to beginning symptom relief was 90 minutes for the 44 patients in the treatment arm receiving the 50 units per kilo of Rucanest, whereas in the placebo arm that involved 31 patients, that time was 152 minutes. And this was a statistically significant difference. And furthermore, in the open-label extension portion, symptom relief actually began in 75 minutes. And essentially, in the open-label extension study, we saw that 97% of the swells were treated with just one dose of Rucanest. And this was a study that involved 44 patients receiving the 50 units per kilo of Rucanest across 170 attacks. And let's not forget that in the pivotal trial, approximately 9 out of 10 patients achieved symptom relief with just one dose, again, the 50 units per kilo, and that was in 44 patients. And what we also saw was that Rucanus stopped 93% of HAE swells for at least three days. When we look at the post hoc analysis in pooled data from the randomized control trial and the open label extension phase of two studies, the treatment dose again being 50 units per kilo of Rucanest, we saw data for the three days or 72 hours that were available for 68 of the 127 patients. And that encompassed uh, about 280 attacks. Uh, you know, it sounds like Rucanest could really be a good option for patients who are struggling with incomplete on-demand treatment. One of the things that I try to translate when I look at this data to my patients is a reminder to them that in the clinical trials, these patients, they needed to achieve a certain magnitude of, of severity or of symptom burden in order to then qualify for the attack to be treated with, you know, the then study medication, which has, which became Rucanest. And I emphasize that point because I want my patients to treat early. And we've already kind of talked about that in all of your uh, kind of digging and probing and, and, and validating your patients, kind of trying to get to the, how they're doing this. And I want to emphasize that as good as these results are, uh, it doesn't mean that we have to wait until the attack is of moderate severity to to treat. We can we can treat sooner in hopes of then aborting their symptoms faster. Rafi, can you tell us more about the safety and the tolerability of Rucanest? Sure thing, John. Other than a serious adverse reaction that was reported, which was anaphylaxis, the most common adverse reactions in the clinical trials that occurred at a rate of 2% or more were the following three, headache, nausea, and diarrhea. Now, let me turn this around to you, John. What other safety information is important from your perspective for clinicians to know? It is contraindicated in patients with a history of rabbit allergy or hypersensitivity reactions to other C1 inhibitor preparations uh, so that's important to keep in mind. And of course, patients should be monitored and taught to monitor for signs and symptoms of allergic reactions, including hives, generalized urticaria, uh, tightness of the chest, wheezing, hypotension, and or anaphylaxis. If any of those symptoms occur, discontinue Rucanest treatment and administer an appropriate therapy. Now, on to blood clots. Serious arterial and venous thromboembolic events have been reported with the use of C1 inhibitor products. 
And risk factors may include the use of ports or any sort of venous access device, history of previous clots, underlying atherosclerosis, use of oral contraceptives or certain androgens, morbid obesity, and immobility. Patients can be trained to self-administer Rucanest once they recognize an attack. But they should also know that if the attack is progressing or they are not able to properly prepare or administer Rucanest, they should have a plan in place to contact a healthcare professional to seek medical attention. They should not administer more than two doses within a 24-hour period. In terms of the most serious adverse reaction reported in clinical trials, it was anaphylaxis. During the clinical trials, the most common adverse reactions with an incidence of 2% or greater were headache, nausea, and diarrhea. Before prescribing Rucanest, please read the full prescribing information, including the patient product information. For more information on what Rucanest can do for your patients, uh, please visit rucanest.com. Rafi, we're getting near to the end of our uh, chat together today. Kind of bringing it all together, uh, what are some of the main points that you would like for our audience to remember from our conversation? Well, first of all, this was a great exchange, John. And some of the key takeaways would be, first, if a patient's having to administer more than one dose of an on-demand treatment to control their HAE attack, that might indicate lack of treatment response. And that may limit the patient's ability to return to their daily activities, which we discussed are important. And also to have clinicians having conversations with the patients to identify occurrences of this treatment redosing and to consider how that could affect their management approach. And also, the fact that we talked about research studies that demonstrated that only one dose of Rucanest may be providing durable symptom relief for patients with acute HAE attacks. I think those are great points for us to remember. And I certainly have committed myself to being more open and aware of, of this phenomenon and trying to ask my patients about it. Uh, hopefully echoing some of the techniques and, and strategies that you have provided. But all in all, Rafi, it's been great having you with us today. I've certainly loved your stories, your insights, and your anecdotes. Well, thanks for having me, John. And you know that I always learn from you. It's been a fantastic conversation that hopefully a lot of physicians can take away some good points from. I absolutely agree. Again, uh, for our audience, you have been listening to Swell Conversations, a promotional HAE series. This episode featured Dr. Rafi Tashtin sharing insights about redosing and HAE attacks. This is the final episode of our four-part series. We invite you to explore the other episodes in this series if you have not already done so. Once again, I am John Anderson, and I thank you for joining us for this Swell Conversation.